Welcome back to Plane Crash Diaries with me, your host and pilot Des Latham. This is episode 24 and comes courtesy of a suggestion by one of my listeners called Russell, surname withheld as he's an operating commercial pilot. Don't want to upset the corporation, you know. First of all, a big thank you to Russell for the research documents and information he provided. This has helped a great deal preparing for this episode. We're looking at Terrain Awareness Warning Systems, or TORS, and Ground Proximity Warning Systems, GPWS, with emphasis on the latter. Now with the added advantage of an E, Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning Systems. In 2006, the International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO, published a report which included this line, EGPWS TORS technology has entered airline and corporate operations during the last five years. To date, no aircraft fitted with such a system has been involved in a CFIT accident control flight into terrain. These systems are now mandated for all turbine engine aircraft of six or more seats. That gives you some idea of how important these two bits of technology have been to aviators. Unfortunately, there have been a few CFIT accidents despite this technology since but the point is, safety overall has vastly improved. So let's go over a couple of examples which Russell has provided and some which Akao analyzed. As usual, folks, this series is about how aviation safety improvements after accidents have led inexorably to flying being one of the safest ways to head from A to B and then even C, D and E. Throughout the history of aviation, controlled flight into terrain, or CFIT, has been a major cause of fatal accidents, particularly at night and poor visibility or when the crew become fixated by technical issues and forget to aviate. In response to this hazard, the industry developed the Ground Proximity Warning System, GPWS, which automatically warns pilots if the aircraft is approaching the ground. Since the mandate for large airplanes to carry GPWS was launched in 1974, the number of CFIT accidents reduced significantly, while in 2000 the requirements were extended, as we've heard, to smaller commuter planes. One of the limitations of the first GPWS was the fact it could only detect terrain directly below the aircraft. If there is a sharp change in terrain, mountain, in other words, GPWS does not detect the aircraft closure rate until it's too late for evasive action. Other issues have arisen. For example, detection algorithms in these computerized systems change when the plane is configured for landing. Early GPWS wouldn't warn the pilots that there was insufficient terrain clearance with flaps down, undercarriage extended, and certain approach speeds having been reached. As with all things aviation, an upgrade was required. So, to overcome the limitations of GPWS, a new technology, Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning System, or EGPWS, was introduced which combines a worldwide digital terrain database with an accurate navigation system, ideally using the Global Positioning System, or GPS. The aircraft's navigation position is compared with the database of the Earth's terrain. If there is a discrepancy, pilots receive a timely caution or warning of terrain hazards. Here are some examples of sounds. Caution. Terrain. Decision height. Don't sink. Don't sink. Plus. Hundred. Pull. Up. Too low. Gear. Too low. Terrain. 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 Pull. Up. EGPWS and TORS will provide a warning in advance of steeply rising ground and extends the warning almost to the runway threshold. It recognizes that the land ahead of the plane could contain aviation dragons. 
And so, when was GPWS first mandated? Enter stage left, a certain Canadian by the name of C. Donald Bateman, known to his friends as Don, who was engineered Honeywell and credited with developing the first ground proximity warning system after the 1971 crash of Alaska Airlines Flight 1866. So he's kind of credited with saving more lives than any other single person in the history of aviation, with that invention and a couple of others I'm going to mention. You may think that's grandiose hubris. Perhaps you'd say the person who dreamed up aircraft brakes should win that title, or perhaps the inventor of the jet engine. But I still agree that Don Bateman cracks the knot. Bateman's device used radio waves to measure altitude and triggered an alarm when the aircraft was too low. But as we've heard, it was not aimed forward and couldn't see steeply rising terrain. One of the accidents that drove Bateman to seek a solution was Alaskan Airlines Flight 1866. The aircraft was a Boeing 727-100 manufactured in 1966 and was captained by 41-year-old Richard C. Adams, who'd logged over 13,800 flight hours, including just under 2,700 hours on a Boeing 727. His first officer and pilot at the time of the Seaford accident was second captain 32-year-old Leonard D. Beach, who had 5,000 flight hours and 2,100 on the Boeing 727. The first officer was 30-year-old James Carson, who had 2,850 flight hours, including around 2,600 on the Boeing 727. All three were current with no health issues or limitations. So on September 4th, 1971, Alaska Airlines Flight 1866, call sign Alaska 6-6, was scheduled to depart Anchorage in Alaska and then to stop at Cordova, Yakutat, Juneau, Sitka and finally Seattle talk about a busy flight deck. The flight duly departed on time at 0913 from Anchorage. The first stop at Cordova was uneventful apart from a slightly sticky cargo door which caused a short delay. The Boeing took off from Cordova at 10 hours 34 and landed just over half an hour later at Yakutat at 11.07 then took off again at 11.35 for Juno. By now it had 104 passengers and 7 crew aboard. At 1146, the crew contacted Anchorage Air Traffic Control. They reported they were at flight level 230, or 23,000 feet, and 65 miles east of Yakutat. The controller issued a clearance to descend at pilot's discretion and then to cross the pleasant Beacon intersection at 10,000 feet and gave them a clearance limit of Howard Beacon intersection. The controller gave them the current Q&H, or altimeter setting, and requested that they report passing through 11,000 feet in the descent. At around 10 minutes to 12, the crew informed the controller they were leaving flight level 230, descending to be level at 10,000 feet at Pleasant Intersection. Three minutes later, at 1154, the ATC instructed the crew to stop their descent at 12,000 feet. So they reported level at 12,000 feet less than a minute later. The controller then explained that he had to change the clearance due to another aircraft in the airspace near Juno a Papa PA-23 Apache, and its pilot appeared to be lost. The Papa's altitude was unknown, and there was some confusion about the route it was supposed to be flying, so the pilots aboard Alaskan Airlines Flight 1866 acted as a communication relay between the controller and November 799 Yankee, which lasted a few minutes. This happens quite a bit. Last week I was aviating around Johannesburg at night, and a Cessna 172 lost sight of one of our airports here with a grand name of Grand Central. It's really hard to find at night because it's uncontrolled after hours, the landing lights are switched off, and it's surrounded by urban areas. Furthermore, locating the airfield even after the lights are switched on is tricky because the lights line up with a nearby highway called the M1, 
and it's notorious for confusing pilots, including me, more than once over the last 12 years. Pilots near Grand Central, though, in this case, spotted the Cessna, and the student found his way to safety, I'm pleased to report. So, back to our story. At 1100 hours 58, the Alaskan Airlines Boeing reported passing Pleasant Beacon and entered the holding pattern when the controller re-cleared them to the Howard intersection. ATC then asked the captain to confirm they were still at 12,000 feet, and if they were on top of the clouds, they answered negative. They were now flying in clouds and on instruments. By 1200.07, the controller cleared the flight for the straight-in LDA approach to runway 8 and told the pilots to cross Howard inbound at or below 9,000 feet. An LDA approach is conducted with vertical guidance using the localizer type directional aid, or LDA approach. The crew acknowledged the clearance and reported leaving 12,000 feet and then concentrated on their approach as they sought to lock onto the LDA. Vertical guidance, though, is provided by instructions on the approach chart. The procedure involves descending to various published altitudes upon crossing specific intersections between the localizer and a nearby VOR station. But the localizer was not equipped with distance measuring equipment, or DME, at the time of the accident, and this was going to be catastrophic for the crew and passengers of Flight 1866. At 12.08, the crew reported their position as leaving 5,005, 4,005, and were instructed to contact Juno Tower, which they duly did. They were supposed to then report over the Barlow intersection. ATC was still transmitting weather conditions and runway in use to the pilots when the plane hit the eastern slopes of a canyon in the Chilkat Range at 2,500 feet, around 18 miles west of Juno. The Boeing exploded on impact, and according to the cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder, there was not even a last second awareness among the crew that a collision with terrain was imminent, a controlled flight into terrain. A few hours later, the wreckage was located. There were no survivors. The FDR and CVR were both recovered and were intact. The data indicated the crew did not use the audio identification features of the navigation radios, nor did they use all available navigation aids to determine their position. But during the NTSB investigation, it was noted that the approach that they were using did not specify the use of all facilities, so the pilots were exonerated. However, the board also found there was potentially a lack of crew coordination between the two pilots in their navigation radio tuning procedures, but it was not their fault that the navigation radio procedure was faulty. Based on the crew's conversation and the flight's erroneous position report over Barlow, the NTSB realized that the captain's navigation radio had presented the crew with consistently false information at several points along the approach path. No reason for the false indications could be determined and so you must feel a great deal of sympathy for the pilots and the passengers. The ATC had also used proper procedures in holding the Boeing while sorting out the lost papa we heard about, so there was no fault there either. As usual, it was the combined effect of a number of events and issues compressed together that led to this crash, worsened by the fact that the crew had no idea what the lie of the land below them looked like, and further compounded by the low visibility condition of flying inside cloud. Needless to say, for Honeywell engineer Don Bateman, this vagueness about the sharp-pointed mountains around Juno was unacceptable, and the Canadian and his team developed the first ground proximity warning system. By the time he retired in 2016, Bateman had over 40 US and 80 foreign patents concerning aircraft terrain avoidance systems, head-up displays, speed control auto-throttle systems, stall warning systems, automatic aircraft flight control systems, and weight and balance systems. 
just because we're fixated by numbers, folks, the primary GPWS patent was called Aircraft Landing Approach Ground Proximity Warning System. And the patent number is US 3922637. After the initial GPWS was launched, that wasn't good enough. Bateman told his team that every five years they should come up with a new model, in his words, to make it better. And that's engineer speak right there. So as we've heard, these advancements led to the creation of the Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning System, EGPWS. This program provides a better visualization than the earlier, and pilots can now view a visual display of hazardous terrain below and ahead of the aircraft, and our next accident led directly to the introduction of EGPWS. That was the American Airlines Flight 965, a Boeing 757-223 from Miami International Airport to Cali in Colombia that crashed in mountains outside its destination in December 95. Despite the GPWS warnings and other red flags, it was also a lack of situational awareness that led to this CFID accident. However, had the EGPWS been installed, we may not have been talking about this accident. Thanks to Russell again, who supplied some of the core information of this crash. The Boeing that flew to Kylie that day did have ground proximity warning, but they had lost situational awareness, and worse, the plane had been incorrectly configured for a fast climb. So on December 20th, 1995, American Airlines Flight 965 left Miami International Airport at 21 hours 42, heading to Alfonso Bonilla Aragon International Airport in Cali, Colombia. Most of those on board were returning to Colombia for the Christmas holidays. A winter storm, though, in the northeast U.S. caused the airline to delay departure to allow for connecting passengers. Eventually, the flight was two hours late. This had a knock-on effect, as we're going to hear. It was carrying 155 passengers two flight crew and six cabin crew. 57-year-old Captain Nicholas Tafuri had more than 13,000 hours of flying experience, including over 2,200 on the Boeing 757, and First Officer Donald Williams, aged 39, had close to 6,000 flight hours and over 2,200 on the Boeing 757 as well. As with many accidents, there were a few things that were out of order, and although not a cause of the crash, we'll consider them. For example, Kali's air traffic controllers had no functional radar as it had been blown up in 1992 by the terror group FARC. At that stage, Kali's approach used several radio beacons to guide pilots around the mountains and canyons that surround the city, which the pilots needed to program into the Boeing's Flight Management System, or FMS. Once these were programmed into the FMS, in theory, it should have told the pilots where to climb, turn and descend all the way from Miami to the terminal in Kali. As they approached Kali, the air traffic controller, who could only speak basic English, asked the pilots whether they wanted to fly a straight-in approach to runway 19 rather than coming around to runway 01. It would save time. The pilots agreed. And this is when things went badly wrong, as they'd programmed the 01 approach into their flight management system and now had to reprogram the new waypoints. Disastrously, they cleared all the waypoints from their navigational computer. When the controller then asked the pilots to check back in over Tulua Beacon, north of Kali, it was no longer programmed into the computer, so they now had to pull out their maps to find it. Then another action was to doom the aircraft. They extended the speed brakes to slow down the Boeing and expedite descent. This was not an error at the time, but later, when they tried to apply power, they'd forgotten to retract the speed brakes. By the time the pilots found Tulua's coordinates, 
they'd already passed over it. And now another action further compounded the other errors. In their haste to reprogram the computer for the next approach waypoint known as ROSO, which was a non-directional beacon or NDB, they selected Romeo instead. That was an NDB near Bogota, a city further inland. What happened next was recorded by the cockpit voice recorder. At 21 hours 40, the captain stated, It's that... It's that F to Lua I'm not getting for some reason. See, I can't get. Okay, now, no. To Lua's F at up. At 21 hours 40, 49, the captain said, But I can put it in the box if you want it. The first officer replied, I don't want to Lua. Let's just go to the extended center line of... Uh, the captain interrupted. Which is Rosa? At 21 hours 40 and 56 seconds, the captain stated, Why don't you just go direct to Rosa then, all right? The first officer replied, Okay, let's... The captain interrupted again and said, I'm going to put that over you. The first officer replied, Get some altimeters. We're out of ten now. I feel some sympathy here. Under pressure and clearly tired, they were making mistakes. You see, the computer's stored list of waypoints did not include Rosso as R, but under its full name, Rosso. The pilots were used to waypoints being identified by their first letter. By picking the R from the list, the captain caused the autopilot to start flying a course to Bogota, which caused the airplane to turn east in a wide semicircle. Cali is close to the southwest coast of Colombia, whereas Bogota is inland and northeast of that position. The pilots picked up that something was wrong and tried to turn back south, but still did not recognize why the FMS had tried to turn them around. The confusion over the use of first letters as waypoints would lead to Jefferson facing legal action later, along with Honeywell. In the meantime, the aircraft had entered a valley running north-south parallel to the valley they were supposed to be in. And now the pilots had put the aircraft on a collision course with a 9,000-foot mountain. To further compound the can of worms, the air traffic controller on duty that night did not understand English properly, let alone aviation English. Reading the transcripts of the CVR and hearing the ATC, it's excruciating how they were unable to communicate. At 21 hours 41 and 2 seconds, Kali approach requested the flight's altitude. The captain replied, 965, 9,000 feet. The controller then asked at 21 hours 41 and 10 seconds, Roger, distance now. The flight crew did not respond to the controller. They were too busy. Five seconds later, at 21 hours 41 and 15 seconds, the CVR recorded the cockpit sound and it was the ground proximity warning system. Caution, terrain. The captain muttered, Oh, f***. And a sound similar to the autopilot disconnect warning could be heard. And then the captain said, Pull up, baby. The FDR then showed that the flight crew added full power and raised the nose of the airplane. But of course, those speed brakes were still extended and the stick shaker indicated a stall warning. So the captain lowered the nose slightly and the stick shaker stopped. And it was at that precise moment that the plane hit the mountain called El Diluvio or the Deluge. It had taken 12 seconds between the GBWS alarm to the moment of the crash. The aircraft actually hit trees 8,920 feet above sea level on the east side of the 9,000-foot mountain. They were only a few feet from safety, and the tail struck the trees growing on the summit. So close, so close. The flight data recorded that they were flying at 187 knots, or 346 kilometers an hour, with a pitch attitude of almost 28 degrees. Incredibly, five passengers who were all seated within two rows of each other survived the initial impact, but one died two days later of his injuries, 
Four others lived to tell the tale. Another survivor was a dog which was in the cargo hold. But it was partly because of this accident that GPWS was improved to EGPWS, which analyzes the terrain ahead of an aircraft to provide much earlier warning. We need to understand, however, that the main cause of this crash was pilot error. They had failed to adequately plan and execute the approach to runway 19. They had fixated on the final approach despite numerous cues suggesting they reconsider. The air crash investigation concluded that a lack of situational awareness, a failure of the flight crew to revert to basic radio navigation instead of fixating on the computerized approach was the cause. The flight management system actually increased the workload in a critical phase of the approach and they became confused. They were two hours late and expediting their approach. They were in a rush. They tried to climb under full power with full speed brakes deployed. They selected the wrong R in the list of waypoints. Of course, they were also flying over some of the most mountainous terrain in the world to boot, which increased the risk substantially. There have been suggestions that the air was not properly filtered in the aircraft at the time and their confused state was because they were suffering from partial carbon monoxide poisoning. I'm not going to dwell on this too much as the debate was inconclusive, but from the CVR transcription it's clear highly experienced pilots did appear slow and ponderous in their actions. Safety recommendations following this accident including improving the GPWS. An enhanced ground proximity warning system that could have prevented the accident was then introduced in 1996. So, since 2002, aircraft capable of carrying more than six passengers are required to have an advanced terrain awareness warning system. In a sour note, scavengers took engine thrust reverses, cockpit avionics and other components from the crashed Boeing outside Kali using Colombian military and private helicopters to go to and from the crash site. Many of the stolen components reappeared as unapproved aircraft parts on the black market in Miami shortly afterwards. Chillingly, parts of the plane actually made it back to its point of departure carried by corrupt government officials. Of course, litigation also now began. American Airlines settled numerous lawsuits brought against it by families of the victims, while the airline in turn filed a third-party complaint against Jefferson and Honeywell, which manufactured the navigation computer database. The airline blamed these two companies for failing to include coordinates of Rosso under the identifier R. Finally, in June 2000, the jury found that Jefferson was 30% at fault, Honeywell was 10% at fault, and American Airlines 60% at fault, leading to some payouts to the airline. American Airlines continues to operate the miami Cully route as Flight 921, operated by Boeing 737-800. With that, we'll end for this episode. For next, I've been asked by a listener called Herman to cover the Pakistan International Airlines Flight 268, which uh, crashed while approaching Kathmandu's Tribhuvan International Airport in September 1992. So please aviate, navigate, and communicate safely. Until next, goodbye.